For our scripture reading this morning, we turn in God's inspired word to Psalm 29. Psalm 29. Give unto the Lord, O ye mighty. Give unto the Lord glory and strength. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. The voice of the Lord is upon the waters. The God of glory thundereth. The Lord is upon many waters. The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is full of majesty. The voice of the Lord breaketh the cedars, yea, the Lord breaketh the cedars of Lebanon. He maketh him also to skip like a calf, Lebanon and Syrian like a young unicorn. The voice of the Lord divideth the flames of fire. The voice of the Lord shaketh the wilderness. The Lord shaketh the wilderness of Kadesh. The voice of the Lord maketh the hinds to calf, and discovereth the forest, and in his temple doth everyone speak of his glory. The Lord sitteth upon the flood, yea, the Lord sitteth king forever. The Lord will give strength unto his people, the Lord will bless his people with peace. This morning we consider the second commandment, thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me, and showing mercy unto thousands of them that love me and keep my commandments. That's Exodus 20, verses 4 through 6. The exposition of the second commandment in our Heidelberg Catechism is found in Lord's Day 35. Questions and answers 96 through 98. What doth God require in the second commandment? That we in no wise represent God by images, nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in his word. Are images then not at all to be made? God neither can nor may be represented by any means. But as to creatures, though they may be represented, yet God forbids to make or have any semblance of them, either in order to worship them or to serve God by them. But may not images be tolerated in the churches as books to the laity? No. For we must not pretend to be wiser than God, who will have his people taught not by dumb images, but by the lively preaching of his word. 
Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, how important to you is the true worship of God? That's the issue in the second commandment. That there's a close connection between the first and second commandments is clear. All image worship is idolatry. If, for example, you were to represent God by an image, as did Aaron in making the golden calf, and you were to worship that image, you would be sinning against the first, first commandment. You wouldn't be giving praise to God, but to an idol. But it cannot be said that all idolatry is image worship. We saw last week idolatry takes many different forms. There's a distinction between the first and second commandment. Transgression of the first commandment comes before the sin against the second. Idolatry is first. First a man seeks out a god of his own imagination, and then that's idolatry, but, but when he proceeds to make an image to represent God and by which to worship God, he's making an image of what he conceives to be God. So that while the first commandment confronts us concerning who God is, the second commandment speaks to the question how he will have us worship him. We are called positively to love the Lord our God by true worship. Worship which he himself requires of us. So give me your attention for a while this morning as we consider the second commandment, loving God by true worship. We notice first of all the general meaning. Secondly, the underlying principle. And finally, the gracious promise in this second commandment, loving God by true worship. So we begin by considering the general meaning of the second commandment. The second commandment states, Thou shalt not make unto thee any graven image, or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above, or that is in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth, Thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. It's evident that when the second commandment forbids the making of graven images or the likeness of any creature, the idea is not that we may not make any paintings, create any statues, or take any photographs. Some of our children probably have a little farm set to play with, including some little plastic cows and horses. You don't have to be afraid of playing with those things, even though they are images of real cows and horses. Some of you enjoy photography, as I do, our conscience need not be bothered by looking at those photographic images or, or hanging some of those photographs on our wall. It's evident even from Scripture that, 
That's not the application in the second commandment. Think of the many various creatures, for example, that adorn the temple. But the meaning, as is evident from the second part of the prohibition, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them nor serve them, is that we may not make any representation of a creature for the purpose of worshiping God through them. As I said in my introduction, the second commandment addresses our worship of God. When the Ten Commandments were introduced to us in the first part of Lord's Day 34, we were given to see that those Ten Commandments, while negative in form, always carry positive instruction and a positive calling as well. When God forbids idolatry, he requires of us that we know him in truth, that we trust in him, that we submit to him in our whole life, acknowledging that he is God alone. And when you come to the third commandment, next week the Lord willing, and see that God forbids us taking his name in vain, he positively requires that we use his holy name in fear and reverence. Well, in the second commandment, where he forbids the worship of images, what he requires of us positively is that we worship him according to the rule that he has prescribed for us in his word. The calling, therefore, is set forth positively in the psalm which we read, Psalm 29, the second verse. Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. We are to worship him knowing who he is. To worship him, after all, is to bow before him, giving the, him the glory due unto his name. By implication, therefore, the second commandment requires of us the true knowledge of God, something that was emphasized last week in connection with the first commandment. I want you to understand this. I want our children and young people to understand this too. The first step in sinning against the second commandment is severing ourselves from the word of God. That's the first step. Some do that as the modernists simply by denying the authenticity and authority of the scriptures. But it's also possible to do that by ignoring the scriptures so that we do not search it or by having a careless attitude toward the word of God. When we can do without the faithful exposition of the word in preaching, when scripture has little place in our homes 
or in education, when we can settle for little Bible, little gospel, a little less than the whole counsel of God, we've taken the first big step toward the violation of the second commandment. Ignorance of the truth is first. Then we look for an image that we can worship. Rejection of God's truth is first. Then we will determine how we shall worship God. Because when we won't listen to God, then we turn to the creature, whether ourselves or another. And how appealing it is to our sinful flesh to think that we can have something to say about how we shall worship God. And that our worship of him is the matter of what makes us feel good. The catechism was written, of course, in the time of the dominance of Roman Catholicism. The reformers, including the two young authors of our Heidelberg Catechism, Zacharias Ursinus, and Caspar Olivianus were well aware of the worship practices of the Roman Catholic Church and its widespread use of images, a multitude of images, with those of Jesus and the Virgin Mary being prominent, even though the Bible explicitly condemns the use of images for worship, the Roman Catholic Council of Trent declared authoritatively, and I quote, the images of Christ and the Virgin Mother of God and of the other saints are to be had and to be kept, especially in churches, and due honor and veneration is to be given them. Session 25 of the Council of Trent. So Roman Catholic priests consecrate those images, place them in their churches, and teach the people to bow before them and to worship them. But if you should call them to repentance for violating the second commandment of God's law, as we are considering it this morning, they would say, no, no, that's not the idea. We simply make those images to help, to help people concentrate on the miracle given by the Blessed Virgin and on the incarnation and the suffering and death and atonement of Christ. They insist they're not worshiping the image. It's just that the image illuminates the scenes in their minds, helping them to focus on the pure and holy life lived by that particular saint, like the Virgin Mary, for example, so they might better worship God. And they point to the various images that decorated the temple in the Old Testament. Ignored, however, is the fact that this is the symbolism in those various images as well as the fact that none of those images in the Old Testament temple served the church in her worship. 
In fact, the brazen serpent that Moses set up in the wilderness to the salvation of many who looked upon it, a symbol of Christ being lifted up for the salvation of many, that brazen serpent was never meant to assist Israel in worship. And years later, when it was elevated by the Israelites to the status of a sacred relic and was worshipped by the people who offered incense to it as a means to worship Jehovah, the godly king Hezekiah destroyed it. He broke it in pieces. So noteworthy was that act that it is recorded for us in Scripture in 2 Kings 18, verse 4. Our catechism correctly and very bluntly states, God will have his people taught not by dumb images, but by the lively preaching of his word. But people of God, the dangers of violating the second commandment by false worship is not limited to Roman Catholicism by any means. I am convinced that belonging to the appeal of many evangelicals to working toward reestablishing relationship with Rome is the fact that much of the evangelical church world today no longer has any principal difference with Rome over worship. Yes, I recognize there are many different differences in worship practices. But to much of the children of the Protestant Reformation, worship is simply open to whatever makes the people feel good about God. We do well to remember, as Protestant Reformed churches, that the Reformation, and particularly John Calvin, who devoted so much attention to developing from Scripture the doctrine of holy worship in distinction from, from the worship practices they had come out of, established, Calvin established the worship practices that we still follow today in our Protestant Reformed churches. Our worship services today, with very little change and nothing of substance, are fundamentally the same as practiced by the Reformed churches from the time of the Reformation because it is worship as God has required it in his word. That's our conviction. Now, you and I do well to study the principles that determine those worship practices so that we understand firsthand why we worship God the way we do. But these practices are established in Holy Scripture. And yet, in recent years, Reformed churches, with few exceptions, have introduced all kinds of new practices in worship. 
Many left off the singing of the song. They introduced singing by choirs and individuals. Preaching has taken a lesser place in worship services. Occasionally, in some Reformed churches even, there might be a movie shown or a play. More than 30 years ago, when I was serving as pastor in Randolph, Wisconsin, there was a, a church whose heritage was ours who broke off from their congregation over worship practices and introduced all kinds of innovative practices. One Sunday, they had a clown come in and do his thing from the pulpit. Something I'm sure really got the attention of the children, but to what end? In other churches, the influences of the so-called special gifts of the Holy Spirit have provided opportunities for tongue speaking and healing. In many Reformed churches, Worship committees have been appointed to dream up new forms of worship for each worship service. I've heard a complaint from a minister in one of those churches that the worship committee tells him the subject of his preaching and how long he might preach. It has to fit the scheme and the time frame of the service mapped out by the worship committee. And for a person to call those practices into question is to gender charges of being too old-fashioned or not sensitive to the needs of the young people. And striking it is that in most of those churches, the young people have emptied the pews. They're gone. But it's proper to ask the question, if the worship practices of the Reformed churches were carefully established on biblical principles in years following the Great Reformation, what is the basis for these new worship practices? After all, it isn't that scripture has changed. What we see, therefore, is men and women determining how we shall worship God so that we might be the beneficiaries of that worship. What feels good is now the determining factor. And although I don't have the time this morning to spell out from Scripture all the reasons for our worship practices and each of the elements of our worship services, our liturgy, let me remind you just how important is the question of how and for what reason we worship God. Leviticus 10, 
calls our attention to the account of Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, who in leading God's people in worship, introduced some new thing. We read that each of them took his censer and put fire therein and put incense thereon and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he commanded them not. In other words, they introduced into the worship service something that God himself had not commanded. They weren't doing it to be rebellious. They were just adding something they thought would contribute to the worship service. But the result was this. Leviticus 10 verses 2 and 3. And there went out fire from the Lord and devoured them. And they died before the Lord. And Moses said unto Aaron, This is it that the Lord spake, saying, I will be sanctified in them that come nigh me, and before all the people I will be glorified, and Aaron held his peace. What a powerful testimony to the urgency of careful worship. Worship is not about making us feel good. Worship isn't about you and me. Worship is about God, the Holy One. Before all the people, I will be glorified, says he. That's worship. That's worship required in the second commandment. The underlying principle of the second commandment is found in the truth that God is a spirit who must be worshipped in spirit and in truth, John 4, verse 24. God, being a spirit, cannot be worshipped by any material representation. He's altogether different from us. We must not have a God like unto ourselves. Then he would be limited. Then he would be no greater than we. But God is a spirit. There is no visible, tangible form of God that we could see or according to which we might form a mental picture. Material is confined. Material is limited. But because God is a spirit, he's not confined within limits. The question of how we shall worship him, therefore, is not a question of outward form. Undoubtedly, Nadab and Abihu were very pious in outward appearance as they approached God to offer that incense. But a pious look means nothing to God. True worship is a matter of the heart and of willing obedience to his will. 
And that's why this second commandment so ruthlessly exposes us, you see. God penetrates to the heart of all our worship, of all our sitting in church, of all our singing, of our praying, of our listening. He knows our inner motives. He knows our thoughts. He knows our wandering thoughts. To put it bluntly, you cannot fool God in worship. So there are times when he says, this people worships me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. He calls us to repentance. The fact that we are not Roman Catholic in our worship practices doesn't clear us. The fact that we don't follow every whim and have not done what other churches have done doesn't clear us. We need Christ. This outward principle, this outward worship, done in harmony with the biblical principles God has established for worship, must still be accompanied by a proper spiritual attitude and approach personally. Do you understand that? Furthermore, don't forget the glory of God as you approach him in worship. He is infinitely glorious. Far above all that is called creature. He's infinite in his wisdom in his knowledge, in his love, in all his virtues, and anything that infringes upon his divine glory provokes him to jealousy. For that reason, God does require of us the service not only of the inward, but also the outward man. When we gather for worship, we are to come with the reverence that is his due. Psalm 89 verse 7 puts it this way. God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. We must enter his presence for worship in a proper sense of his glorious presence with us. This isn't an informal gathering of friends who listen to some speech and then gather in the narthex or outside to shoot the breeze. Whatever expression of honor we might give to earthly superiors. Whatever preparations you might make, going back to Bible times now, to entering the presence of a powerful king, those preparations ought to be the more intense, the more careful, 
when entering the presence of the King of Kings. Yes, we ought to be concerned about our dress in God's house. If a visitor comes in blue jeans and a t-shirt, wearing old tennis shoes, we ought to welcome him openly. And especially in our day when so few have received any instruction concerning the majesty and glory of God and what it is to worship him. But we who have been brought by the hand before the greatness of God's glory ought to come before him with a deep heartfelt reverence that will come to expression also in our outward appearance. He owns us after all, body and soul. But because he's so far exalted above us, a spiritual being, God himself must tell us how we shall worship him. If we make an image, we have a God we can comprehend. No bigger than we. God is incomprehensible. God alone knows and comprehends his own divine being. If we are to know him, he must reveal himself to us. And he does. Revelation is a matter of God showing himself to a people that he has formed to show forth his praise, to see a reflection of him who is too glorious to look upon. He reveals himself to us in the face of Jesus Christ. Yes, all God's works are the mirror by which we see him. But when we speak of revelation, we must understand that at the center of that revelation is the incarnation. Else all we would know of God is the terrifying reality of his power and glory and relentless holiness. But now we see Jesus. And through him we see the magnificent God of our salvation. The God whom we long to worship and to glorify with heartfelt gratitude. So God himself shows us that which we otherwise would not see. And because he would have us worship him in spirit and truth, he shows us how. The sin of image worship is to depart from that. When we turn from God's revelation, then we form in our own imagination a conception of God and we begin to worship him accordingly. God's revelation requires of us that we listen. Ecclesiastes 5, verses 1 and 2 puts it this way. Keep thy foot when thou goest to the house of God, 
and be more ready to hear than to give the sacrifice of fools, for they consider not that they do evil. Be not rash with thy mouth, and let not thine heart be hasty to utter anything before God, for God is in heaven and thou upon earth. Therefore let thy words be few. Hear the word of God. So particularly that means that the word must have the central place in the worship service. God will have us taught by the lively preaching of his word. We have seen before the importance of the preaching, both from the viewpoint of its being a means of grace and its being a key of the kingdom of heaven. But worship must be listening to what God has to say to us through Jesus Christ. That implies, of course, that, that anyone who preaches must bring what God himself says in his word. And everything that's not based upon that revelation of God must be rejected. But in hearing Christ, we find worship a matter of holy communion with God. A communion in which he speaks and we in turn respond. God himself has established it. God determines how it shall be. And therefore, we must look at his revelation in Holy Scripture and search it and appropriate it and make it our own. That, in the first place, is the underlying principle of the second commandment. God is a spirit, and therefore he himself must reveal who he is and how he shall be worshipped, and you and I must listen and worship him in the beauty of holiness. And then in the second place, the underlying principle of the second commandment is set forth explicitly in the commandment itself with the words, For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God. Remember, all belongs to him. You and I belong to him. And all the love and praise and adoration that can ever arise from us belongs to him. All worship belongs to God alone. And because he is holy, perfectly consecrated to his own divine being, he cannot tolerate that love and honor and praise be given to another. Scripture often describes God's people standing before him in a relationship of a wife to him. In that covenant relationship to him we, that we enjoy, he will not stand for us expressing the love of our hearts to anyone else. 
to any self-contrived notion of God. He's a jealous God, and that's his right because of who he is. He will not have his glory dragged down to the level of a creature. He will not be worshipped as a mere man. And he will not allow his glory to be given to another. He will punish those who do so. For I, the Lord thy God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. The Catechism does not expound that aspect of the second commandment. Simply speaks to what he forbids or what he will not tolerate. But this is the seriousness of obeying the second commandment. A seriousness impressed upon the church in Leviticus 10 with the deaths of Nadab and Abihu and also upon the church throughout the generations in the loss of the generations of those who have departed from God's command concerning true worship. You may remember that we are told in Ezekiel's prophecy, we are told explicitly that the children shall not be punished for the sins of their fathers. That doesn't conflict with what we read in, in Exodus 20, verse 5. The meaning of this fearful threat is not that the children will be punished for the sins of their fathers, but the truth set forth here is very real. There is a recognition of the reality that we stand in an organic relationship to each other in our generation. And that's seen very clearly in our children who bear our own sinful nature so that often our own sins and character weaknesses come to expression in our children. What we are told here in connection with the second commandment is that there is no sin that develops so frightfully in the generations than the sin against the second commandment. Let one generation depart from the true worship of God, and the next generation will not only follow their example, they'll bring it farther. Let one generation corrupt the revelation of God, and the next generation will corrupt it even more. Let one generation introduce worship practices into the church that have no biblical basis or foundation, and the next generation will take it farther than that. And that's been documented in the history of the church. It should be no surprise that some of the elements of pagan worship that made its way into the worship practices of the Roman Catholic Church are even today finding acceptance in some reformed churches where the word of God is forsaken and the law of God forgotten 
the spirit of whoredoms hath caused them to err, and they have gone a whoring from under their God. Hosea 4, verse 12. And as Hosea goes on to point out, that whoredom came to expression in their worship practices. That being said, I want to conclude with something positive from this second commandment. The positive note, there's a gracious promise appended to the second commandment unlike any other commandment of God's law. God shows mercy unto thousands of them that love him and keep his commandments. For us who believe, this is another astounding and glorious aspect of the commandment as a rule for our life of gratitude to God. God reminds us that in the way of true worship, he is pleased to show his mercy to thousands. He does that in the generations of those who fear his name. Countless are the multitudes who worship Jehovah of hosts. God has been pleased to reveal himself in the face of Jesus Christ to those multitudes whom he has chosen as his own, whom he has formed to show forth his praise. Do you recognize yourself among that glorious multitude? Do you lay hold of this promise? with your eyes also upon the church's children? Oh, how love I thy law. We sing that. Oh, how love I thy law. But God is also pleased to show us his mercy. Faithful worship. Worship in harmony with his word is worship in which we hear him speak. That word is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. Did you notice the power of that word of God as we read Psalm 29? The voice of the Lord is powerful. The voice of the Lord is upon many waters, powerful indeed. The voice of the Lord is powerful in all his creation. By the word of the Lord were the heavens made, and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth, Psalm 33, verse 6. But how great has been the power of that word in our own souls, in our own lives, our own hearts. By that same word of God, he has spoken to us. He has called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. And by that same word, now heard through the lively preaching, he continues his work in us making himself known to us, showing his tender mercies and his faithfulness to all generations. Blessed be God.
Give unto the Lord the glory due unto his name. Yes. Worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Amen. Our gracious Father, when we examine ourselves and our worship of thee, we grieve our sinfulness. When we think of the multitude of times when we have not concentrated in worship, when our minds have wandered, we have not paid attention, we have not sung from the heart the songs of Zion to thy praise. Father, we confess our sins before thee. We thank thee for the gift of thy dear Son, who has worshipped thee perfectly and in, in spirit and in truth, who has imputed his righteousness to us, and continues even now to work in us by his word and spirit so that we desire to worship thee in spirit and truth. Sanctify us to that calling and receive our humble worship to thy name's honor and glory. For Jesus' sake, amen. <clears throat>